Attention listeners from across the galaxy, all the way from Australia to Houston. Do we have a pube problem? If so, our friends at Manscaped have cleared you for takeoff with their fourth generation and brand new Lawnmower 4.0. Kick your pubes to the next planet with the Performance Package 4.0. The orbits in your pants will feel like you're in zero gravity when you use the best tools for the job from the leaders in male grooming. Join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and get your rocket ready for takeoff by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code MANAGINGMADRID. Hey, Matt Wiltsy, you think anyone in the 80s used Manscaped? And if they did, who would it be? So there may have been one player who was uh, ahead of his time, and that's a certain now manager of Real Madrid, Carlo Ancelotti. He scored an absolute cracker of a goal in this match from the 80s. And Carlo was probably using some sort of Manscaped tool from from uh, from the 80s. And now as a Real Madrid coach is, is using the lawnmower 4.0 pretty often. We, we're well aware of that. So Carlo, well done, nice goal, and continue to use your Manscaped tools. Listeners get 20% off and free shipping with the code MANAGINGMADRID at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code MANAGINGMADRID at manscaped.com for a clean trinity and beyond. Your space balls will thank you. This episode is also brought to you by the Ryu Plaza New York Times Square Hotel, which is where you should be booking your stay for our December podcast. We are coming to December. <laughs> we are coming to New York rather in December on the December 4th weekend. Um, and the link to book your tickets there are in the show notes. New York fills up fast. It always has. It already is because it is one of our top three markets. So, um, if you're anywhere in that surrounding area, make sure to book your spot early and get the early bird rate locked in. By the way, if you want to have a real adventure and discover New York's major neighborhoods and hidden gems, Ryu Hotels and Resorts, New Hotel is the best choice since it is located close to the city's main subway lines, which cover all of the Big Apple's boroughs. The 7 train, which is only six minutes from the hotel, will take you to Queens, where you can visit Long Island City, the borough's most fashionable neighborhood. The A and C trains, just a quarter mile from the hotel, will take you to Brooklyn, where you can where you can visit Prospect Park. And lastly, the three train, which is six minutes from the hotel, will take you to the Bronx. And the ferry, which will take you to Staten Island, where you can take in the spectacular views of the Statue of Liberty. As you can see, just a few steps beyond the hotel, you will have access to all of New York. It is an amazing spot. That's where we stayed last time we were in New York. And it's right across from the podcast venue, which is the Playwright Irish Pub. You walk out just down the street. It's Times Square. It's literally the, everything, the heart of the action. So if you're going to be traveling to New York from the podcast, go to Ryu, R-I-U.com, and you can book at the Ryu New York Plaza Times Square. It's the best. Go and book your stay there. And we look forward to seeing you in New York. We look forward to seeing you guys in L.A., Toronto, Dallas, Miami, Chicago, D.C., Mumbai. It's going down. It's going to be a ton of fun. So. Uh, all of those cities are in the show notes if you want to book your spot to those places. And without further ado, here is a unique and special Managing Madrid podcast where we go back and revisit Real Madrid's historic loss to AC Milan's dynastic 88 team. So let's get started. Nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. They're wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. Benzema needs to rest and the numbers reveal 
right, welcome to a Sunday edition of the Managing Madrid podcast. It is a rare moment we, where we don't have transfers, we don't have games, we have no friendlies, nothing really breaking, and we try to reserve those slots for historical games. So today we are winding back the clock to 1989, to one of Real Madrid's worst defeats in the club's history. And we do this because, not so much because we are sadistic and we like to torture ourselves, although that is part of the, you know, that pain is part of this, um, but more so because it's important to know these things in club history. When we discuss it, we can't only discuss all the highs. We have to discuss the lows. We have to discuss everything because that's, it's all part of the journey. So um, Matt is here with me. We don't actually have to do too much background of this particular game. It's a second leg of Real Madrid's 5-0 loss to AC Milan in the Champions League semifinals of the European Cup, as it was called then. We've actually already done a lot of the background on the first leg when we, when we recorded the podcast on the first leg. And I'll actually include that podcast in the show notes. So if you haven't listened to that already, you can go back and listen to it. And that actually, if, if, if you haven't listened to that, I actually stopped this podcast right now. Go back and listen to that. And then you have all kinds of context for this particular podcast. So, um, Matt. Do you want to set us up in a different way for this game? I mean, we, we don't have to necessarily dive into that season because we already have done so, but we can talk about the setting up for this particular game and the lineups and, and so forth. Yeah, I think it'll be good to run through just who is playing the formations and some of the familiar names listeners will know. Um, so let's start with Real Madrid. From, from a Real Madrid perspective, they played in. They kind of played this hybrid formation, which we talked about um, during the first leg as well. But you could say it's a three-five-two, or it just morphs into a normal four-four-two as well. And the thing to note from this match, which was similar in the first game as well, is Gallego, who's typically, by all accounts, a center midfielder, uh, plays basically as a deep-lying sweeper. Uh, who builds out from the back and everything goes through him. And so he's Real Madrid's number 10, but he's the furthest guy on the pitch playing as a sweeper. So Gallego in the central sweeper position, then Chendo and Sanchis, Manolo Sanchis, uh, the, the other two center backs, Cordillo at left back, Michel at uh, like right wing, right back, almost center mid hybrid. He just kind of floats all over the place. Uh, Schuster and Martin Vasquez in the middle. And then uh, Butragueno played kind of as a withdrawn forward with Hugo Sanchez and Paco Llorente, Marcos Llorente's father, up front. Um, and we got a glimpse of him last time where he came on and nearly scored Paco Llorente in the first leg as a late substitute. But this game, he actually got to start. Um, so it was, it was good to see kind of more of him and see. I actually see the parallels to, to his son. You can see him play pretty clearly. Yeah, and then... I mean, especially in this game because he was uh, going up and down the right flank. Yeah. And it just their run, like his running style, I feel like they run very similar. It's a very powerful uh, stride where they kind of push their shoulders out a little bit. So it's, it's eerily similar, as you would imagine, between father and son. And then um, on the AC Milan side, we had a 4-4-2. They're, they're well-known 4-4-2. Uh, Maldini at left back. Barisi at center back with Costa Curta, uh, Tassotti at right back, Colombo and Ancelotti on the wings. Though Ancelotti would switch with Donadoni. Those two would go back and forth between uh, playing on the wing and playing in the middle. Right card, number eight in the middle, who was phenomenal in this game. 
And then the dynamic duo, the Dutch duo up top, Van Basten and Gullit. And those guys were just unplayable in this match. Yeah, it was uh, it, not only from a technical perspective, I found that to be true, Matt, but also from a physical perspective. I felt like Real Madrid didn't really know what oh, to yeah. do with them from a physical perspective either. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those games where when you look at the lineup and the names on the paper, you can't really tell what's going on until you actually watch the game. And it's not like it's not quite like the Stefano era level unstructured where the names on the team sheet or where their place mean nothing. Although I'm not even sure if they did that back then anyway. I, I remember uh, one of the games in the in the Di Stefano era we did, the lineup was literally just the camera panning in, zooming in on someone writ- wrote their names on a piece of paper. Like that was their that was the extent of the the, yeah. the graph or the I don't know the, the graphic digital skills they had was just a piece of paper that they zoomed in on. Um, so those games you really have to figure it out. But this, I mean, this one wasn't quite that obviously, but there were definitely some structural things that you wouldn't have noticed if you just saw the teams on, on paper. Um, and, and the roles of Michel and Paco Llorente were, were among them. Um, the way they kind of, they didn't really stick to either flank and, uh, they went in and out of, in and out of both. And also, like you mentioned, Gallego, also Gordillo, who was really rarely in position in this game. Um, so just things like that. And also Sanchez and Chendo were kind of all over the place, but part of that is probably because they see Milan drag them in and out of positions. But um, it's funny, Matt, this is the second time I've watched this game. I t- this morning was the, I, I watched it this morning before we recorded, about half hour before we started recording as a refresher. The first time I've ever watched it was not like really taking notes or anything. But what I did remember from the first time I watched it was that if you watch the opening like 20 minutes of this game it really has it's not a reflection of the scoreline and um i really felt that up until ancelotti scores an incredible goal to open this open the scoring make it one nil real Madrid seemed i wouldn't know if i wouldn't know if i said go to the extent to say that they were the better team but they certainly were way more confident like they they looked like they were playing with more conviction the build-up was a little bit better butrogueno looked like he was involved um Schuster was was dribbling in and out of midfield although I I I really was disappointed with Schuster overall in this game but you know the start wasn't bad Matt and um I suppose if you're watching that live in the stadium or on tv somewhere and you're watching the opening 20 minutes and someone told you that Real Madrid would lose that game 5-0 it would be unfathomable I think yeah that those were exactly my thoughts watching the first 20 minutes or so you this game, Real Madrid and arguably were the better side. I mean, they, they probably created more dangerous opportunities. That being said, I was I was impressed with how AC Milan, um, how confident and how organized they were defensively because they let Gallego have the ball in the back. They let Real Madrid like gradually get up the field and they were happy to do that. But once they once Real Madrid hit a certain spot in the field and it was usually around the top of the center circle, then they pressed like maniacs and were all over them, really physical and just would win the ball and go straight down our throats. And so that's that that was the difference for me. Like they were comfortable allowing Real Madrid to have some possession. And sometimes we did nice things with the ball and and we got it out wide and put in some dangerous crosses. Um, there is one moment in this game, which was that I wanted to get your take on. It was after Ancelotti's goal. So Carlo, as you mentioned, scored an insane goal. It was one of, one of those. It reminded me of like a Luka Modric goal from long distance. It was 25 yards out. He dribbles a couple times, a couple guys. I think he beat both Schuster and Vasquez in the middle yeah. and then just rips a shot. Um, but shortly after that, 
or actually, no, sorry. AC Milan scored again. So AC Milan scored two goals within 25, the opening 25 minutes. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti's goal comes in the 18th minute. And then Rijkaard scores in the 24th minute, wherein he outleaps Chendo, does a snap header, and Madrid just switched off on a corner kick, switched off completely on a set piece. So AC Milan are 2 nothing up. But there was one moment in this first half that I felt like could have changed this game completely, can change the narrative, and maybe would have given Madrid an opportunity to actually progress. And that was um, when Michel played an unbelievable pass. I think it was with the outside of his boot, broke like two lines, sliced through the defense, and Butragueno gets on the end of the pass. He's incredibly fast, and he just beats the goalkeeper and gets clearly taken out inside the box and no call, no penalty, and they just go on. And they show the replay. They actually do have replays, and they show it a couple times over. And it's for me, it's clear as day. So I wanted to get your take on that moment. Uh, I was going to ask you about it too. And I think, there, I mean, the, the, I guess the problem is that we only see one angle. Like that's, there's no like, okay, yeah, let's go. Because we, we only see the angle from the far side of the field. We don't get to see the angle on the other side, which I think would have been really interesting. So obviously there's, we, we don't have that. We don't have those extra angles to be able to decipher it properly. But I, I thought it was. And uh, I, I think a couple of strange things over these two legs was that there were actually a lot of weird referee calls, right? Remember when you go back to the first leg where Milan had a, was it a goal disallowed for offside when it was clearly onside or something that effect? Oh, I have yeah, to yeah, go yeah, back yeah, and look yeah, at my yeah. notes. And then uh, there was a makeup call where Real Madrid score and it was uh, disallowed for no reason. And, um, and in this game, there were moments like this. And weirdly enough, no one really fought it, right? Like you didn't really see Real Madrid up in arms and, 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 uh, and going crazy over it. So they just kind of, it just kind of happened. And, they were, and so this is, but this brings up a, an interesting point in general. There was something about this Real Madrid team that I think they were in this particular game, they were a little bit too reliant on like moments that swung their momentum. Like this was, if you even look at um, the, their body language and the manner in which they kind of hang their heads right after Ancelotti scored was weird to me. It was like, you're only you're you're still in this on aggregate. You're you're down two one on aggregate. Um, you score one more. You're tied on away goals. You're tied on aggregate, and you're good to go. You're looking. You're in a good spot. But I actually thought like with each passing goal, Real Madrid just kind of sunk more and more, and they were just waiting for this game to be over, which I thought was really weird because when you look at the names on the field, you look at all the Maridismo on the on the pitch, the players from the youth team. I mean, I mean, maybe it was a it was a point to like an end of an era, but. I mean, look, Butrogenio was like, what, 25 in this in this game? Like, it's not like, and Sanchez was still pretty young. So I, I don't want to, like, a, a lot a lot of, like, passing of the torch is, like, the narrative of of this game and this time. In, in, in a way, it was because AC Milan, obviously, this was the first of their back-to-backs. The European trophy, they won it again in 93-94. And Real Madrid never got back to this phase of the European Cup until they actually won it in 98. So in that, in that sense, it, it was. But it was kind of the way it ends here like is still kind of surreal to me a little bit strange a lot of these players are still pretty young and um they had plenty of firepower to at least fight back and i just didn't see that fight and i i want to and like so there's moments like this that could have swung the game like you mentioned the penalty there was also um they also had like that sanchez chance in the box you remember that i think that oh, was yeah. actually when it was still nil nil where He's wide open. It's coming down in a corner. You just can't connect with it. 
I wonder how like moments of that would have like changed the complexion of this tie. Obviously, it's football, man. Like it, it is what it is, and the moments are like that in every game. So you can't really say like, and obviously AC Milan deserved this either way, and and they probably would have won this either way. But it was kind of weird to me to see like the body language of the entire team. Yeah, and I I felt like once the third goal went in, which was literally right before halftime uh so it's three nothing right before the whistle blows for halftime uh Gullit scores another it was another snap header and I just felt like the team looked tired and they just didn't there was to your point Keon the body language the attitude like there just was no no vigor in their performance and there was no grit and kind of those intangibles that we sometimes talk about and they they weren't there and it just felt like this team was on its, on its last legs. And it got to, it got so far to this stage of the season, almost, almost kind of like the team this year where like they got to the semifinals and, but they were on their last legs and there were so many injuries and so many tired players. And it, it felt like that in this game. And once that third goal went in, you knew game over done. Like there was, there was no chance of coming back. Did you, uh, is that, which, which dog is that? He's chiming in. You That's two, two dogs. dogs right? uh, it's two dogs yeah. at once. That's both of them together, like a yeah. transformer. All right. Welcome yeah. to the podcast. <laughs> um, so, oh yeah. So I wanted to ask you this and we're talking about like, you know, the players on this team and, and kind of the fight and where they were. Where I, did you notice Hugo Sanchez at all in this game? He was a ghost. No, not, not. And then that was the thing. Like, too many players were anon- anonymous. Like, I can't think of one, like, standout Real Madrid performance. Um, I, so, and this, like, the Hugo Sanchez thing is also a symptom of, like, Milan were really good defensively. Um, they were much more compact. Like, a lot of this Real Madrid buildup was just bad. Half of it down to just really bad passing from the back. Um and half of it down to like Milan was also pretty compact when, when Real Madrid tried to get into the final third, much like the opposite of Real Madrid's defense, which was like vertically wide open in this game. And Rijkaard, Gilt, um, Ancelotti, they, they always had this clear lane of passing that they could just get the ball, advance the ball up the pitch. And also like, and going back to the defensive perspective, Baresi was awesome in this game. Um, just the way like, I mean, a topic again, we talked about it in the first leg, but a topic again today will be the offside trap where there were really, it wasn't that much in this game. Maybe that's because Real Madrid just didn't get into good positions that much, but at least twice where Milan did the whole offside trap thing where they all come and they, the, the, the defensive line, the entire defensive line just sprints up the field and Real Madrid just, even though they knew it was coming because they saw it in the first leg, obviously just had, it just hit them hard. They, they looked confused. They didn't know what to do with it. Um, so just a combination of all those things, bad build up from Real Madrid, good defense from Milan, Hugo Sanchez was a ghost, which is a bad thing to happen to probably your best player, uh, from a talent perspective. And, um, and that, and that was, and that was kind of rough to deal with Real Madrid. I never felt like they, they, they had any ideas to combat what Sachi was doing. And, um, you know, it, it was just disappointing to see it kind of surreal to watch it unfold like that Milan were great though yeah I, th- I think there were a couple things that Milan did that really made the difference in this game and one was 
um, they kept looking to exploit the space between the wide fullback or wide winger and the center back in our system. So whether it be Sanchez and Gordillo or uh, Chendo and Michel or Gallego and Chendo, and those spaces just, we kept getting dragged out and there was so much space there for them. And then the rest of the team could move forward and it was just an onslaught at, at certain points. And I think our midfield really struggled to compete with Ancelotti, Donadoni. I think those guys really, um, Rijkaard played really well and they dominated the midfield. And when your midfield three can't control it and can't get a hold of the game and theirs can, I mean, it, it's always going to be a long afternoon. And I thought the quality in midfield was was pretty shocked, like just the gap on the day. I'm not saying like overall that they're better players, but the gap on the day was was pretty astounding. Like they, AC Milan had come to play and right guard. I, I was so impressed with in this match and he just kept popping up in great, great spots. Uh, almost, I would call him like a hybrid number eight, number 10, and just popping up in the right spots, playing the right passes. And Van Basten and Gullit up top, like you could literally ping anything into them. They bring it down. They head it like they they just they were monsters and aerially in the, in the air. Real Madrid could not compete. And I'm sure the listeners heard us talk about two. Of the, I think two or three of the goals were from snap headers, literally because AC Milan outlept the Real Madrid defense and it was it was easy for them. And even Van Basten's goal which was the fourth goal of the game, literally right at the start of the second half. So Real Madrid gives up a goal right at the end of the first half and then right at the start of the second half. And um, on that fourth goal that Van Basten scored, it actually started from a long ball being kind of lobbed into Gullit, who, who heads it down to Van Basten, and then he can control and take a, a just unbelievable shot in the top corner. So... Just that aerial presence they had, their their physical abilities, it was they were dominant in that regard. And I think it, it was such an advantage for AC Milan over Real Madrid. Yeah. And so there's a there's a, a couple of things too. One was the physical domination that you spoke of. Like those players, like it seemed like Gillett Rijkaard in the box, in the air, or whatever. It felt like a cheat code for Milan to just hit those. It's kind of like the Maruan Fellaini, except these guys are are way better than Maruan Fellaini. And they can also do stuff with the ball at their feet, and they're really good. Um, no disrespect to Maduan Fellini. I think he's made an appearance on the Manscaped ad at some point due to, due to the bush. Um, respect. So, but, but like, so there was that one, that aspect of like not being able to contain their presences in the box on set pieces or crosses. But I also felt like they didn't do a good job of preventing those crosses from coming in. So, on, was it the fourth goal, the one that Van Basten scored, right? It was the ball from Rijkaard into Gilt, who knocks it down with his head. And it's Sanchez and Chendu, I think, defending those two in the box. And, and it looked really easy. But if you look at the Rijkaard pass, Schuster's like way off him, not even putting pressure on him. Kind of the way um, Liverpool fans complained about their team for not pressuring Tony Cruz when Cruz was picking them apart from deep playing that quarterback role. Kind of similar vibes to that, except Rijkaard was actually more advanced on the pitch and we still weren't putting pressure on him. And then you look at the goal Milan scored just before halftime, which was, um, was that, um, let me just see, who was it that scored the header there? Uh, I think that was Gullit. That was Gillet. That was, the, that was right Gullet. before halftime, right? Yeah. So um, 
that one was from a Donna Donny cross. And when you look at the start of that play on the left, on Milan's left-hand side, um, Donna Donny gets behind Sanchez a little bit too easily for my liking with just a quick one-two. He just sprints around Sanchez. And then Sanchez also can't prevent the cross from coming in. And I think all of that, you know, like, and, and again, like Real Madrid's defenders, and these are all great defenders on paper. They're just getting dragged around. They're not, they're with each passing minute, each passing goal in this game. I felt like they're also losing more 50-50 challenges. And the other big thing, like, and I mentioned this at the top of the podcast, I was, and I'd be curious to know what your take on this is. I was really disappointed with Schuster. Um, if you look at the first leg of this game, and Schuster was actually a pretty big talking point in that game because normally a pretty reliable passer um, in his in his profile as a player. He had multiple bad giveaways in the first leg. Um, one of them, I remember Van Boston actually gets a break from but doesn't score from in the first leg. Um, he's also like, he's doing a bunch of things. He's everywhere from playing center back to center mid in that game. Um, he's actually, you know, his touches under pressure are pretty good. And um, he actually had an overall pretty good game in that first leg, all things considered. The second leg was really, was really disappointing from him. And I, and I thought like he just was a little bit too cute on the ball at certain times. And I, I guess that's kind of part of the player he is. He likes to be delicate with his touch. He likes to kind of bounce and, and play with grace. But a lot of this under the zonal marking of Milan and the, and, and the pressure that they were putting on in certain areas in midfield, it was it actually led to a lot of giveaways, bad passing, bad dribbling sequences. And I think that also trickled to the rest of the team. I, I'm not, I'm not going to single him out and say that it was just him because even if you look, especially Paco Llorente had a couple of shocking bad giveaways in the second half when Real Madrid were just done and out of this game. But, um, but, I, but it kind of starts there. Like this, it's basically, Matt, like what is it? A Schuster-Vasquez double pivot is kind of the way this, this works, right? With... Sometimes Gallego Sanchez stepping into midfield and um, it kind of starts there. That's where the spine was. And I don't think the spine was strong enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I would have preferred to have seen Sanchez just play midfield. I think you needed his intensity in there and someone who could kind of roughen things up and go shoulder to shoulder with the AC Milan midfield and put some pressure because like you said, they just had far too much time and space on the ball. And we, Butragueno usually plays that withdrawn forward role. Sometimes Paco Llorente was in there. Um, and those two just, they, they, they don't have that same kind of focus on the defensive responsibilities in midfield. They're more forward thinking players, attacking players. And so Real Madrid were outnumbered for most of the night in midfield. And that's where, that's where they struggled. Um, and I just wanted to mention to one guy who I, I wasn't really familiar with from this AC Milan team. You hear all the names, you hear Rijkaard, you hear Vamas and like Barriessi, Maldini, you know, all these guys, you know, all these names, but over the two legs from watching these two legs, the guy who really impressed me that I didn't know much about was, uh, Donadoni. I thought he was so impactful. Um, whether he was playing on the left or playing in the middle, middle of the park, like, he could cross, he could dribble, he could find a good pass. He had a shot on him. Like it, he did the, he had the work rate as well. I mean, everything, everything. And I was, it's not a guy I was familiar with, but really, really impressed with. I like Donadoni in this game. I also like from a, from a Milan perspective, although this is not like, this is still a very young Maldini. I thought he, he pretty well had Paco Llorente and Michel in his pocket 
all game. Like there was one moment where I think it was, how was it? Was it Llorente or was it Michel? Let me see if I can find it. It was Llorente. Llorente <clears throat> does this like nice quick shoulder drop. Uh, he pretends he's he's cutting back, but then he goes down the wing and he gets Maldini for a split second. And then Maldini is like, no, no, I got, I'm, I'm, there's no way I'm letting you do this. And then he just recovers so masterfully and takes the ball from him. Um, so it was cool to see a young Maldini do things. And um, I, since listen, it's a, it's a Real Madrid podcast to make this as relevant as possible. Carlo Ancelotti is uh, the more I get to know about him as a player, the more I'm impressed with him. I, I think he's been fantastic. And, you know, just watching these two games, these two legs, it's, it's really opened my eyes. I mean, we kind of knew, I remember like Lucas and I had a question on the, on the mailbag at some point, like what, like who are the best manager players? Like if you combine their players and their managerial and playing careers together, and obviously like Cryef and Zidane are, are two that pop up, you know, Pep is there. Ancelotti is like probably top five as like player manager kind of duo and stuff. So, um, do you want to talk about Ancelotti's performance here? I, I liked, there is like, there's a quote that Sachi says um, about Ancelotti where he says, Ancelotti is like not the most talented player, but he plays with his head, which obviously means it just means he's cerebral. He's smart. He knows where to be. But from a technical perspective, I really like what I see from, from Ancelotti. Um, I like his dribbling. Obviously he's a, he's a great shooter from distance. Do you want to talk about Ancelotti's performance a little bit? Yeah, and he, he was 30 years old in this match, so um, starting to enter kind of those those uh, twilight years. But I was actually taken aback by how quick his feet were because there was one moment, uh, I don't know if you remember this, kind of out defending his own box. He wins the ball. He's almost on, almost looks like he would be a right back where he wins the ball. I think it was off a corner kick. And he produces a, a really nice piece of skill where he, he just switches – from one foot to the other inside outside and then gets drawn for a foul. And he does it so quickly with his feet. I was like, wow, I didn't think Carlo had that in him. And so um, he, I, I just, to your point, I think he was just a very tactically adept player. Like he always, when, when he was playing on the wing, he always knew when to tuck in. He was always in the right spots to recover the ball. Uh, he could play on the wing or in the middle. And um he did honestly. He did remind. I'm. Mean, he's not at their level, but he did remind me of a like Modric, Cruz type. Yeah, kind of like just smart player knows where to be. Nice touches. Um, he's he's also really good. Like if he's just a little bit under pressure, he knows exactly. And this is this is a, maybe a general Milan thing from that era too. Was like, don't dabble on the ball. Just get the ball where it needs to go. You know, you don't got to be too cute with it. Um, yeah. there was a certain like directness to it. Um, not to romanticize them too much, but you know, they are one <laughs> of the greatest teams of all time. Like the, you know, top, whatever, take your pick, but you know, so they, they're, I suppose they're romanticized for a reason. Um, and one of the things they did was they looked very direct and their movement off the ball, their zonal, their zonal marking, which was kind of new in a time of Catanaccio predominantly in Italy. And, um, obviously their offside trap, which, it's still crazy to watch. Um, this one, do you remember the first leg? It was way crazier because they did that thing. It was like not only an offside trap, but then they would all rush into the Riamtra box and it was like all of a sudden 11 on like four in the yeah. other way. Um, yeah. So it wasn't that crazy, but it, it was still crazy to watch that. Um, should be noted, Matt, which was interesting that 
it's based, it's because of them that the rules change, right? So part of the reason the offside trap was so effective for them was because they didn't need to catch any particular player offside. Back then, the rule was if anyone is offside, even if not involved in the play, it's offside. So the fact that you can't really do what Milan did then um, is it's partly because like like now you have to be involved in the play to be offside. So it's, it's harder to replicate. Yeah, because there, there was one moment in this match where um, Schuster was coming back from an offside position, but he wasn't involved in the play. Yeah, and Gordillo, I think it went out wide to Gordillo, who would have been clean through, like he would have been through one v one. And today, he would have been onside if if the rule was intact. But because of that rule, uh, he was called back, and uh, it. I mean, it was. I, it's definitely a good change. And at first, I was like, "Wait, that's not that's not off that's not offsides." But then I remember that uh, this rule was still intact. That and the back pass rule still uh, still not yeah. a thing. Then you can just. I hate that one. Oh my god. I, you it know what? So it's amazing that it's we a, don't see teams exploit it more. Like when watching these historical games, like if you're just winning, it's kind of a douchey move. But couldn't you just theoretically just keep casting it back yeah. to your goalkeeper and picking it up? It's the equivalent of like you know yeah. when you play FIFA against some kid who's beating you one nothing in the tenth minute and just keeps passing it back and you can't do anything. <laughs> um, it's a cheat code. But but obviously that that rule changed for a reason as well is because that that part of the reason why like you could just ride it out uh, and it's a cheat code. So thank God that's gone as and well. And I'm sure there was, I'd be interested to look back, but I'm sure there was resistance to those changes, to all those changes. Um, but they actually did allow the game to evolve and move in a better direction. So sometimes when we hear the changes that are get approached now, we all are skeptical, but um, usually, usually they're, they're for the right, they're for, for the, the right better reasons. Do you feel like there's yeah. any rules in football right now that, there would be resistance to change, but they need it needs to be changed for the better of the sport. I mean, what comes to me immediately is probably the handball rule, but it's yeah. still they they try and they're trying to change the rules every year. It feels like, and they just can't find the, the right answer for that for that rule. Um, they recently changed the last man or the penalty. And being and last man being a red card, which I think was a good change. Um, I don't know. Other than, the first one that comes to mind is handball. What about you? Is there anything that kind of comes to mind? Um, I don't know if it's 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 not going to be anything like as clear cut and dramatic as these rule changes we talked about with the the back pass and the offside trap and stuff like that. But I do still think the offside rule. Like I, I know Wenger was talking about it recently. That like if football wants more goals, more entertainment, more ratings, then you got to start giving the benefit of the doubt to attackers so that like only their feet basically should be offside. Not like we shouldn't be measuring millimeters of their shoulders and chest and hairline and stuff like that, which I agree with. Um, because if you're going to stop the play and, um, and make the game less entertaining, just to, just to like cancel some goals over some, some fractures, some fractions, um, then, then maybe you should revise that. So I, something like that, I think, would is in the work. Another one, another one came to mind that I think Wenger has has talked about is um, when the ball goes out of play, stopping the clock. And I know I think we saw recently something like just sixty minute games, but all stoppages or or any stoppages aren't counted on the clock. Like something like that, I would actually prefer because I don't think people realize how long 
like even just throwing substitutions, free kicks, guys on the ground, like these things add up and you never, ever get the additional time that that's required. Um, yeah. So that I would I would like to see. But would you would you even stop the clock for a quick throw in? Like how Not like, a quick... <laughs> like, let's say like, you know, it's it's like it's it's like supersonic quick. It's like, you know, you <laughs> the ball goes off a defender. You're right there. You pick the ball up and then just like you have someone just going like this like constantly like that yeah no i'd be interested to see what that would look like but no because actually in in u.s um high school soccer that they actually do that they and i think college i'm trying to remember it was i think it was the same in college too where you stop the clock um for it's only it's not for throw-ins though it's not for anything like quick like that but any injury any injury any like long any uh, free kick or penalty kick while you're waiting for someone to take the penalty kick, all that type of stuff. Like it's all the clock stopped. So where, where I kind of stand on these things generally is whatever makes the sport more fun. I think that that should be the rule. Um, and I know a lot of like tactical gurus will say things like, well, you know, we enjoy all this, the analysis and it's okay to have boring zero, zero games. And like, I actually like sympathize with that, but at the same time, the most fun I have personally watching is just when it's like chaos, like Belgium versus Italy, no defense, just go back and forth. Less, less, uh, less clock stopping, less reviews, just arcade style. That's, that's, that's the stuff I like personally. So I guess it's subjective. Um, is there anything else from this game that you wanted to talk about? It should be noted that, um, a lot of this action is in the first half. And like we noted in the podcast, Real Madrid just hung their head with each goal, with each passing minute. And the second half was basically like Real Madrid just didn't want to be there. And there was only one goal to discuss. It's, so I don't think we had to extract too much of the second half, but was there anything we missed? Yeah. The, um, so to your point, all five goals were within 60 minutes of the game. And the first three goals were in the first half. And the second, uh, the fourth goal was literally right at the start of the second half. So game was over 45 minutes into, into this match. But um, I will say this, the fifth goal, the fifth and last goal that Donadoni scored, it was again from a short corner kick, which was the same as the second goal, I believe. And I felt like both times Madrid fell asleep. Like they weren't switched on on the, with the sweat set pieces. And uh, I also thought, so Donadoni hits like a, a low driven shot from just outside the box and it beat Buyo at his near post. And I thought he could have done a lot better there. And I also, I didn't watch the goal enough times, but it almost looked like he could have done better on the Carlo Ancelotti shot too. I don't know if that's being too harsh, but what did you think? Did you think Buyo was maybe a, a little bit at fault for some of these goals? Yeah. Uh, on the, on the Ancelotti shot, it wasn't, out of his reach it kind of went over and through his hand almost you know what i mean um on the on the donna goal i thought there was a little deflection which probably threw him off and also he probably wasn't expecting him to shoot from there because it wasn't a natural shooting position but it was at his near post and he should have been more alert to it for sure so i it's one of those games matt i think when you look back and then someone tells you like all these great players. Pacabuyo had like, what, a 20-year career? I'd have to look at it again. But he had, his longevity was insane. And you had Quinta de Buitre, all of them incredible players. It's one of those games if you showed somebody like, oh, check out Quinta de Buitre. They're awesome. Pacabuyo, he had like 20 years, man. He was great. And you show them this game, it's like, uh, it's just an off night for everybody, I found. it's It was a, it was a weird one. Uh, I don't know. And this was, 
this was, um, and I don't know how much of this particular context matters, but it's just something that I think is worth worth um, bringing up. This was days after the Hillsborough tragedy, and um, they uh, they stopped the game. Like I think after a minute or so, uh, uh, after the game started to have a minute of silence, and and there was a there was a lot of emotion in that moment and a lot of support from the Milan fans for for the Liverpool fans, and um, I don't I don't know just. Um, I, I suppose I don't know why I necessarily bring that up other than we should bring it up because it happened there was a there was a tribute in this game for it and it was relevant in the context of like that's what the landscape was at that time that week the emotions of that week but it just felt like Real Madrid's heads weren't really in this game like after 20 minutes and nothing worked and no one played well and there were no standouts and Milan just ran away with it and that's kind of where that's how it happened that was a sad end to the Going to the Bithra era from a European scale, anyway. They actually, after this, it was like you know they went to the European Cup for a couple of years, and heartbreaking too because this was three straight semifinal exits. This was a third of three of three, and they never got they never got past that hump. Yeah, and that's kind of been the stain on the on the Quinta del Butre's record is that they never achieved that success in Europe. Um, but was your was your broadcast silent? Because I didn't have any audio on mine, so at first with the with the with the minute silence, it was kind of abrupt. I was like, "What? Where did the?" Because it was oh, after wow. the game started. Yeah, yeah. No, and no. So I was like, "What's going on here?" And I had to look it up, <laughs> make sure. That's funny. Um, Wait, did you watch it on Footballia? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I started Where'd watching watch Footballia, yeah, but I didn't. Uh, I I didn't. For some reason, the five was only forty five minutes, so I assume maybe it was only a half. No, it wasn't like that for you. Okay, so either way. Yeah. For for whatever reason that it it um, was only forty five minutes for me, so I switched it to YouTube. It's on YouTube, and that was a Spanish feed. So okay, yeah, I had some I had some context. So I guess I guess we're at the point in the podcast where we gotta ask, what would Twitter say? What would Twitter say? Um, <laughs> I think there would be a lot of a lot of takes like, was Quinta de Buitre ever really good? <laughs> Like maybe we were just waiting for a team to expose them. Maybe they weren't even actually as good as we thought they were. We should just blow up this team. Yeah, I think there would be a lot of narrative, kind of to the point we just made about the the fact that they never had this success in Europe, and so that this team is never going to be considered truly great, and that now it's time to uh, blow this team up and create a new team and transfer out Hugo Sanchez, Miguel Gallego, get rebuild. them all out and yeah, yeah, yeah. rebuild. Yeah. Um, it, it would be a lot of like, um, Schuster doesn't have what it takes. Does Butragueno, is Butragueno really that good if he can score against these Spanish teams, but not when it, when it really counts? I think it's going to be a lot yeah. of that, a lot of those takes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't imagine what, what, what it would have been like then. I, I'd really be curious to know what the Spanish media would be like the day after and Marca and, and stuff. I, I know I was on the Spanish commentary. And uh, I saw a lot of praise for Milan, though. So they were like, you know, this, this is a great Milan performance. A lot of praise for Ancelotti. A lot of praise for Bar- Baresi. Um, what about... Uh, I guess there weren't really any weird broadcastings, though. Usually, like, this game isn't old enough to have that many broadcasts, weird broadcastings. Well, the only comical thing that I thought was hilarious and I was like, what the hell was when the referee gave Hugo Sanchez a yellow card in like the second minute and Hugo Sanchez like acted like he fainted. Did you see that? I don't remember that. 
I don't remember that. Oh my god, it was hilarious. He just it was I couldn't believe he got a yellow card that early in the game, but the referee comes like sprinting over, goes right in front of Hugo Sanchez in his face and gives him a yellow card and Hugo Sanchez just like flops down and acts like he fainted. <laughs> it was it was I so weird, but yeah, it was one of the I think that the first was... couple minutes I was just uh, figuring out how to uh stream stream it on my TV from my phone. So I probably oh, I that. You, yeah. Um <clears throat> Yeah, I I don't know. I think I think we covered it all. Yeah, I mean this is one here. of uh, this this really is a historic loss in in Real Madrid's history. So I'm glad we went through. And it, it's I like being able to see kind of what really happened. Like what? Yes, we all hear about the five nothing loss and how great AC Milan were, but what really happened? And so it was cool to see. Like, oh, there was a missed penalty. Oh, we actually played well the first 20 minutes. Oh, like, um, we just couldn't handle the physical presence. And they scored on two set pieces when we were sleeping and we were just tired by the end of it. And so it's interesting to see, like, all those, how it, how it, how this loss really came to be. I think one of the things that, um, I don't know if it gets lost, but it like the common the common narrative, like when you look back at this, if if you read articles about this game, it's a lot of like passing of the torch kind of narrative, which I don't I don't disagree with. But the way it's it's uh, made up to be, it almost seems like this Real Madrid team is getting old and this young up and coming team came and snatched it from them and the torch was taken. It's 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 a diff- little bit different than that because this Real Madrid team is actually pretty young. And if you look at, I was actually looking at the average age. So the average age of that Milan team was 26 years old. The average age of Real Madrid 27. And I'm talking about the average age of the players on the field. They actually have stats for that, which was interesting. I didn't expect to see that, but um, football database has that. And so it's it's not like that. And again, at that time, Sanchez 23, Chendo 27. Um, Michel, 26, Schuster, 29, Martin Vazquez, 23, Hugo Sanchez, 30, Butragania, 25. So it's, you know, this is still a very young team. Um, so I, I, you know, look, Quinta de Buita doesn't stay together forever. I mean, that's part of the reason it also breaks up. It's not necessarily due to age, right? Um, there were transfers in and out, team change a little bit. So it, it's... I just thought it was worth pointing out that this is not necessarily like Quintana Buitra getting old in the late 80s and they just get run off the field. It's just, it's still, it has a lot left in the tank if you keep this together and see where it goes. Um, so I just thought that was worth pointing out. Yeah, I mean, compared to our starting 11 last year, we were much, much older. I mean, Benzema, Modric, Cruz, Sergio yeah. Ramos, like Mar- Marcelo when he does play. Um, so yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's, that's a young team. <laughs> it's a young team. Yeah. Um, all right. So, um, I think we can wrap it here. We'll be back Tuesday, Matt. Do we know what we're going to talk about on Tuesday yet? Not yet. We'll have to, we'll have Poss- to possibly we- some Olympic stuff. Um, last yeah, week it was the finals. So yeah, we had the and- last Tuesday. So this, who, so we have Brazil. Japan, Spain plays Japan, so yeah. Kubo versus Asensio Vallejo, and potentially Ceballos. Potentially Ceballos will be back. We know Kubo will be on the field for sure. 
Yeah, less sure about the others. And Rainier has been coming <laughs> yeah. up the bench for Brazil, so we'll see. We'll see where that goes. Um, and obviously, I'm sure Omen Grant will uh, will come will uh, keep you guys covered on the on the women's side. Um, all right, Matt, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Look forward to chatting on Tuesday over on patreoncom slash Madrid. Take care, my friend, and uh, see you Tuesday. Thanks, Kian. See you Tuesday. Before we uh, let you go, we want to give a quick shout out to our $10 plus patrons. Shout out to all of our amazing patrons and shout out to these patrons specifically who pledge $10 or more per month. We love you all. So shout out to Willie Reed, Bella Chow, Brandon Alvarez, Wei Perink, Wamik Jamal, Umar Mahadi, Tyler Simon, Tyler Dixon, Tobias Royal Botcher, Tahmid Kalam, Sujai Wani, Sumanchu Singh, Shabaz Sharapov, Sergio Arispe, Santos Solorsano, Said Mahad, Saad, Saad Omar, Rovi Tahiev, Raul Gutierrez, Ragab Potluri, Phoenix, Oscar Barrera, Nico Laxo, Nick Ribeiro, Nick Lauer, Muxi Thangal, Mowgli, MJ Diego, Michael Zinberg, Marin Myrtle, Leon Stavernakis, Kunal Tilakar, Kevin Rivera, Karen Scherer, John Fernandez, Jeff Thurston, Jason Fitz, Graham Gerard. George Tarazi, Frederick Antakiro, Frederick Sundros, Faisal Hamdan, S.A. Davisito, Eric Rogers, Eric Rogers, sorry, Eloy Enriquez, Edward Sossman, Daniel Williams, Christian Toft, Christian Acosta, Charles Williams, Brendan Powers, Brandon Stevens, Austin Fury Erdman, Arnab Mukherjee, Anthony Lombardi, Anirudh Singh, Alexis Saniseros, Al, Adam Dorsey, Varun, Nick DeStefane, and Fabian Moreno. Thank you so much for your support. Love you guys, and hala Madi.